you're physically able, I would invite you, if you would, to stand as we read God's Word together. We're going to read Isaiah chapter 61, the first three verses. This is what the prophet says. This is what the Word of God says to us today. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the, uh, of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise, instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Isaiah 61, verses 1, 2, and 3. Wonderful words, hopeful words, but what do these words have to do with us today? It wasn't long after Jesus had begun his ministry that he returned home to his hometown of Nazareth. And on the Sabbath day, he went to Sabbath. He went to the synagogue. The Bible tells us it was his custom. Jesus went to church. And on that particular day, according to the sovereign providential will of God, Jesus stood, was asked to, to read the scripture. And, and he opened, it was given the scroll by the attendant, and he unrolled the scroll, and he was given the scroll that contained the, the prophet and the words of Isaiah. And he unrolled it to the section that we read today, what we would call Isaiah 61. He stood before the congregation that day, unrolled the, 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 the scroll, and he began to read a portion of verse, of verse 1 and a portion of verse 2. This is what he said. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Right in the middle of verse 2, and he stops. He stopped reading there in the middle of verse 2, and the Bible, Luke tells us in chapter 4 that he returned the scroll to the attendant, and he sat down. But Luke also tells us that when he sat down, that all the eyes of the synagogue were still on Jesus. They knew something was up. And then it says that he began to speak to them, and he spoke nine words that would absolutely transform everything. Having read the first verse and the first half of verse 2 of Isaiah 61, Jesus said these words in Luke chapter 4, verse 21. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Isaiah 61 comes in the context of God proclaiming his perfect, righteous judgment on his wicked, rebellious, sinful people. But prior to the, the, the second coming of Jesus, God's judgment is always focused on redemption and restoration of his people to a right relationship. The prophet proclaims a hopeful word in chapter 61, and it's a hopeful word for Israel in their day, and it's a hopeful word for us in our day as well. 
Now, I'll explain in just a minute why Jesus stopped reading in the middle of verse 2. But for right now, you need to understand that what Jesus was proclaiming is that when Isaiah proclaimed that the day of God's favor, that, 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 that when Isaiah pro- prophesied that in, in chapter 61, Jesus was saying, it is now here. Today is that day. And I want us to see these things out of Isaiah 61 this morning. Number one, that the good news that Isaiah spoke about and that, that, uh, that Jesus proclaimed, the good news for us today is Jesus. Jesus is the good news. Secondly, I want us to understand that this word is a present comfort for what God is doing and for what God is going to do. And then lastly, I want us to see that we have hope, even as we sit in a very messed up, very broken, very evil and wicked world, even today, because of the promises of Scripture and what Jesus has done and is going to do, we have hope for tomorrow. But let's begin with the first verse and the first half of the second verse and the good news for us today. The good news for us today is Jesus. The good news for us today is Jesus. Now, there is no debate. I mean, there is absolutely no debate this morning that the world that we live in is broken. I mean, if you've watched the news at all, 10 minutes in the last two weeks, you know the world is broken. Pick any subject you want to talk about, it's broken. Finance, politics, just the relationships between people. We are living in a broken, messed up, evil, wicked world. News has been filled lately with all kinds of tragic, heartbreaking events. And many of these events are the result of evil and the destruction that evil brings. So the debate is not over uh, whether or not things are are broken, but the, the, the debate in our culture today has been, is, and probably will be until Jesus comes back, how do we respond to this brokenness? Now the politicians want to write new laws. They say a new law will fix the brokenness. Educators want to teach new lessons. They say we can educate our way out of this brokenness. Medical professionals want to develop new treatments that we can treat and resolve this brokenness. All these things come with great promises by their proponents, but but you as well as I understand that none of them actually resolve the issue. They're only addressing the symptoms. They're only addressing the, the outcomes. Friends, listen to me very carefully. The power of man cannot bring good news to the brokenness of this world. The power of man cannot bring good news to the brokenness of this world. You think about all the things that we do. We're not bringing good news. We're just trying to to fix, to limit, to hinder what's broken. But when Jesus stood in the synagogue that day and he read from Isaiah 61 and then declared to the people that today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, that, my friends, was the best news ever spoken to the ears of man that has ever been spoken or ever will be spoken. Those who were in the synagogue that day knew this passage well. It would have been a familiar passage to them. They likely believed that one day God would fulfill his word, but they probably never thought that it would actually come to be in their day. 
But this is the good news of the gospel, friends, that Jesus came to the poor and broken, that Jesus came to those who have been brought low by sin, that Jesus came to those brokenhearted and bruised by the destruction of sin, that Jesus came to those who have been enslaved by sin, that Jesus came to bring hope of salvation and freedom from sin and healing from the destruction of sin and give hope for eternity to all those who have been um, touched by sin. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to be the sacrifice for our sin and to redeem his people. Somebody say amen. The good news news is Jesus. Friend, when we think about the good news of Jesus, we understand that in Jesus, as he speaks here, there is freedom. Isaiah writes that that Jesus will proclaim liberty to the captives, that he will open the the prison to those who who are bound. Now, the freedom that is declared is more than physical freedom from the confinements that men bring. So, this is more than just saying that people who are locked up in jail are going to get free. This is freedom from the chains of sin. Listen to how Paul writes about it in in his letter to the Romans. He says, but thanks be to God. This is chapter 6 of Romans. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. It is only in Jesus that captives to sin find freedom. We often try to escape the snare of sin through our own effort and determination. We'll do it ourselves. We'll try harder. We'll work harder. These efforts are founded on our own strength and pride and are soon revealed to be insufficient to achieve true freedom. Friends, true freedom. True freedom only comes through the gospel of Jesus. And that's why we say not only is freedom found only in Jesus, but in Jesus alone is God's favor. Most recognize that God's judgment is coming, but few have considered how they will be judged. Now, I would suspect, my guess is, that most of you today would, would not argue with me that someday God's judgment is going to come. But I'm also pretty confident that many of you have not accurately thought through how you personally will be judged. It's been several years now, but had a conversation with a a man in in a a, a place where I previously pastored. I knew him well. His his office, his his business was was right across the street from the church, and so I I would see him often, and we had an opportunity to go and talk with him and share with him the gospel. Now, this guy was not bar hopping. He wasn't cheating on his wife. He wasn't beating his children. He wasn't cheating on his taxes. He was a, a, a man who was trying to be faithful to his wife. He was trying to raise his family. He was showing up for work every day. He was a good employee. He was trying to do the right thing. In fact, in his off time, he was coaching Little League and doing those sorts of things. And so when we, when we talked to him about his need for Jesus, his response to us was, I, I think I'm okay. In fact, we asked him, we said, you know, if you stood before God today, And he were to ask you, why should I let you into into my holy, perfect heaven? What right do you have to stand in the presence of a holy God? His answer was, well, I'm hoping that it's just all going to work out. Now, some of you are hoping the same thing. But friends, the Bible is very clear. No one in their own effort can stand before the presence of a holy God. 
God's judgment is coming. We understand that. Jesus declares God's favor. Jesus declares that with his arrival, it is the year of the Lord's favor. And I would put to you today that it remains the year of the Lord's favor and that the opportunity to receive the salvation that is in Jesus is still available. In other words, with Jesus, there came an opportunity through him, his sacrifice on the cross, and his forgiving, forgiveness that comes through his blood, that you can receive a forgiveness that makes you holy before a holy God and gives you the ability to stand in his presence. That's the receiving of the favor of God. And that, that opportunity to receive the favor of God remains until Jesus returns. You cannot receive the favor of God on your own. You cannot earn it. You cannot work for it. You can only receive the favor of God through the saving power of Jesus. That's why he declares, now is the time. Now, this is the year of God's favor. And friends, it remains the year of God's favor. That is the good news. But there's more here. So you remember, I was telling you that Jesus read verse 1 and verse, the first half of verse 2, and then he stopped. So let's talk about verse 2 for a minute. And I think in, in the second half of verse 2, we come to understand what is our present comfort in a broken world. Look back in your scriptures with me. Verse 2 begins, he says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's where we are presently. And then it says, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Now, the difference between the year of God's favor and the, and the vengeance of God is the difference between the first coming of Jesus that brings the hope of salvation and the second coming of Jesus that brings the perfect judgment of God. So what we understand here is that we, there is a basic truth that Jesus will return. I mentioned in the introduction that Jesus intentionally stopped reading in the middle of verse 2. He didn't read the second half of verse, he did not read the second half of verse 2, which, which talks about the vengeance of God. He stopped reading because the first verse and the first part of the second verse tell what he came to do at his first coming. The second part of verse 2 describes his second coming. So, excuse me, the first part of verse 2 describes his first coming, and the second part of verse 2 describes his second coming. One of the commentators I like to read is a, a man by the name of Ironside, and he had an interesting take on this, and he talked about the significance of that little bitty comma that separates the first and second parts of verse 2. I want to read that, what he said to you. He said, there he stopped at what we would call a comma. He put this whole dispensation in which you and I live into that comma. It is the acceptable year of the Lord still. We have not moved one iota beyond that point where he closed the book. Why did he close it there? Because the rest of the sentence would carry us on into the day of the Lord after this present age has come to an end. So now is the, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation, speaking metaphorically. When he comes again, he will open that book once more to the rest of this passage, and it will all be fulfilled in that, in the, in the letter. With the fulfillment of his first coming comes the assurance of his second coming. 
The second coming of Jesus will be a day of glory for the redeemed and a day of terrible judgment for those who have rejected Jesus. Celebrating the first coming of Jesus motivates us to anticipate the second coming. For Christians, this coming day of God's vengeance should propel us to preach and share the gospel with the urgency of eternity. There's, friends, if you believe Jesus came the first time and you believe that he brought about the hope of salvation, you must believe all that he says, and he says he's coming again. And when he comes again, the day of judgment comes. That ought to propel us, compel us as Christians to preach with urgency, with the sense of eternity, that those friends, those neighbors, those people that we meet on the street who've not received the gift of Jesus stand under the wrath of God. And at any moment when he returns, they can step into eternity without the gracious gift of God's forgiveness. That ought to propel us to the urgency of preaching and friends, for those of you who are lost today, recognize the great opportunity and the great peril you are in outside of God's grace. The great opportunity is today is the day of God's favor. You can receive the gift of salvation. And the peril you stand in is at any moment Jesus returns. The Bible says it'll catch us all off guard. Like a thief in the night, we, we won't be expecting it. If you've not received Jesus at that moment, your opportunity to receive his grace will be no more. Now, I mentioned here that this is present comfort. You might say, well, pastor, how in the world is God's vengeance comforting? Well, this is how I think it's comforting. First, Jesus is declaring that when that day of vengeance comes, that justice will prevail. So the second part of verse 2 may seem strange to those who do not understand the gospel when it talks about the day of vengeance and comforting those who mourn. How is it that God's vengeance will bring comfort to those who mourn? To understand this, we must work backwards. So the, the mourning is the brokenness from what sin has taken and destroyed. That's what's being mourned here. And the comfort comes from the assurance that Jesus will make all things right. In other words, he will rightly, perfectly punish the wicked. He will rightly and perfectly rescue the saints. He will rightly and perfectly judge all things, both what is known and all that has been done in secret. How many times have we had conversations about someone who publicly looks great and righteous but privately is wicked? And someone will say, well, you don't know all there is to know about them. And that's always true. It's true about all of us. On the day of God's vengeance, all that will be exposed and God will rightly, perfectly judge. God's vengeance is God's perfect um, righteousness poured out in perfect and complete judgment. The second coming of Jesus will bring the vengeance of God to perfectly judge and to make all things right. This promise is a word of encouragement to the saints. How does that encourage us? You're being mistreated at work because of, because of the faith. And those who are mistreating you seem to be advancing while you're not. It's a word of encouragement and hope. Dear friend, there's coming a day when Jesus will make all things right. It's a word of encouragement that, that nothing that is, no one who seems like they're getting away is really getting away. Again, Ironside writing about this says our English word here, comfort is from two Latin roots, which mean to be with or to be strong. 
It literally means to strengthen by companionship. And then he, and he talks about how a young child might be afraid to, to walk through a dark wooded place, but when that child is walking in the presence of their father, they're not afraid anymore. Not because the reality on the ground has changed, but because they are with one who is with them and one who is strong, and that brings comfort to them. This word of God's vengeance, this coming, second coming of Jesus, that Jesus is present and will at the perfect time bring about the vengeance of God, is, is comforting to us in that he will make all things right and that his justice will prevail. But then there's verse 3. Oh, there's verse 3. And I think verse 3 points us even beyond the judgment of God to the hope of tomorrow. Let's read it again together. Look in your Bibles. The prophet says, To grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Three things here. When the prophet is looking even beyond the second coming of Jesus and the fulfillment of all the promises of God, he's looking to a day when there will not be less, but there will be no more mourning. The image that verse 3 imagines, or the, the, con, the two contrasting image that verse 3 is using, is the, is, the, is the image of a funeral versus a wedding. A funeral versus a wedding. Now, in, in, in the days of Isaiah, there would, when, when, when a funeral happened, there were, there were those who would gather and they would put ashes on their head to demonstrate um, their, their mourning and their sadness. There would be some who were, I, I, this is probably not the correct way to describe it, but the professional mourners, the, the community who would come and, and uh, weep and wail for a period of time to, 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 to express the sadness of the community. Now, we don't have that anymore. We don't put ashes on our head, but, but funerals, even to this day, are sad affairs that remind us of our mortality and the consequence of, that, that sin brings, that is death. And conversely, weddings to this day remain joyful, happy occasions, and the contrast could not be different, more different between the two. You tend to wear different things to a wedding than you would wear to a funeral. Weddings take on an even more significant concept in the, in the Old and New Testament as weddings are joyful affairs and God uses weddings as a testimony to his relationship with his people. In the New Testament, the, the church is seen as the bride of Christ. The second coming of Jesus is seen as the, 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 the consummation of the, of the marriage and the, return, the, the bringing of the bride to be with her husband. The prophet understands that presently in this world, there may be mourning. In this world, there is absolutely moments and things that break our hearts. There may be seasons when your heart is light, but the reality is we kind of go from morning to morning, grief to grief, sadness to sadness, brokenness to brokenness. But the prophet says, 
There's coming a day when we'll wipe off the ashes. We'll put on the headdress for a wedding celebration. We'll put away the the dark black clothing that represents grief. And we'll put on clothes that are bright and joyful that represent a party. There may be mourning presently, but there's coming a day when we will put away all the things associated with the brokenness of death and put on the garments of joy. That's why in the Revelation, John writes, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning. You don't need funeral clothes in heaven. Somebody say amen. You don't need ashes in heaven because that reality That whole reality of death and the consequence of sin will be no more. The gospel is bringing an end to our grief, our mourning, and replacing it with the joy and gladness of the gospel. But secondly, there will be no more suffering. He says the the oil of gladness instead of mourning Uh, Give them beautiful headdress instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning, garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. The present world is filled, filled with sufferings. And the reality of it is, if your suffering is great today, that can cause you to have a faint spirit, tired. I was preaching a few weeks ago, and And I just mentioned about being tired, and I could see on your eyeballs, I could see on your faces, I'm there, faint, weary. But the gospel promises that the sufferings of this world are coming to an end. Sometimes the sufferings of this world seem so great that we feel the weight of them. Sickness and disease, broken relationships, the damage that sin brings. You may be experiencing those right now, and and physically, it feels like a weight on your chest. Suffering cannot be avoided this side of heaven. But with the second coming of Jesus, suffering will come to an end. That's why John writes in the Revelation, neither shall there be crying nor pain anymore. And this is my best, the best line. He says, for the former things have passed away. Sufferings of this world are the former things. But praise God, they are passing away. Oh, but there's one more thing here. And it's not an afterthought. It's the main thought. Look right at the end of verse 3. So it says, and he'll make us so that he'll make us oaks of righteousness. So we may call oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. And here's the whole purpose of all of this. The purpose of the, the day of God's favor, the purpose of God's vengeance, the purpose of God taking away our mourning, the purpose of God taking away our faint spirit, the purpose of God giving us garments of praise and, and, and headdresses of, of glory instead of ashes. The purpose of all of this is that he may be glorified. All of this is for the glory of God. The last sentence of verse 3 testifies to the unifying motivation of all that God does. Everything that he does is motivated, purposed, focused on his own glory. It's interesting here. The literal translation means that he may display his beauty. That he may display his beauty. You are saved. 
You are redeemed. Your ashes and mourning are put away with for a headdress of rejoicing so that God may demonstrate his beauty. You in your no more mourning, you in your garments of praise demonstrate his beauty. And in so doing, you glorify his name. To glorify God is to delight in and to declare his ultimate and infinite goodness and beauty. Jesus came to earth to bring salvation to man for God's glory. Sinners are transformed by the saving power of the gospel for the glory of God. The vengeance of God's judgment and goodness of heaven are all for the glory of God. Amen. Saints put on the garments of praise. <laughs> Saints will put on the garments of praise for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. This week, our cousins across the pond are celebrating their queen. When Princess Elizabeth and her husband, Prince Philip, in 1952 began their tour of the Commonwealth and particularly through Kenya. She knew that her father was ill, but she did not expect that her father was close to death. But while they were touring Kenya, word came that the king had died. And when the king died, Princess Elizabeth instantly became Queen Elizabeth. She and her husband and her entourage immediately boarded a plane to head back to the United Kingdom to attend to all the events that were required of the funeral and, and all the things of her father and of course her ascension to the throne. But there was a problem. She had not packed mourning attire. She didn't have a black dress. She boarded the plane in Kenya in her summer attire that she had been wearing as they toured Kenya. But when that plane landed in London, someone smuggled onto that plane as soon as it came to a stop, an appropriate black dress, a mourning dress for the queen to wear before she appeared out of, uh, emerged out of that plane. They smuggled it into the plane. She quickly dressed in, in, that, in that morning attire and so that when she emerged with the cameras and the news media all there waiting to capture that moment, she walked out in appropriate dress for the moment. She was in mourning for the death of her father. It's reported that ever since that event so many years ago, but the queen never travels without mourning attire. And she has made it a rule that all royals, wherever they go and whenever they go, also must travel with mourning attire. So they're never called in a similar situation where they're not properly dressed for the moment. And such it is with this world. At any moment, at any time, you might be caught off guard, you may be expecting it, but the reality of it is you need to always have in your closet mourning clothes. Because there's mourning, there's suffering, there's death, there's sadness. 
we plan for and we dress for funerals. We, we make sure we have appropriate clothing in our wardrobes for mourning. We may not be kings and queens, but we still know how to dress appropriately for such things. But here's the good word for us today. There is coming a day when you can throw those clothes away. There's coming a day when you can gather up all the black dresses and the dark suits. You can put them all in the dark hearses and throw them away. Because the days of mourning are going to come to an end. The days of putting ashes on our heads and black clothes on our bodies are coming to an end. We will trade those things in for clothes of praise. We will trade those things in for garments of praise. As we celebrate the vengeance of God to bring about His perfect justice, we will celebrate being in the presence of God by the perfect saving grace of the blood of Jesus, and we will stand in His presence. No more weeping, no more crying, no more mourning, because the former thing have passed away. Dear friends, today is the day of God's favor. That favor has been brought to you through and by the blood of Jesus. There is coming a day of God's vengeance. Prepare for that by receiving Jesus today. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.